It's November 22nd, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. this edition of the NACOcast, we're going to talk about the oboe. Well, as a bassoonist, I share a close familial connection to oboists. You know, they're the sensitive siblings, the special needs child of the double reed family. When sitting at the dinner table, you have to make sure the oboists have that extra bit of nourishment, that extra time to get ready, that special bit of loving care. Well, we don't mind this at all because we know what the poor oboists have to deal with in making a musical silk purse out of a treacherous sow's ear of an instrument. Oboists and bassoonists share a similar set of technical challenges, including an acoustically similar bore and the shared problem of the double reed. But in so many respects, their musical DNA suggests a suspiciously different genealogy. The bassoon is an oddly functional hunchback, an eight-foot tube folded up into a manageable, if rather quirky, body. It's made of maple, a sturdy and reassuring wood, if there ever was one. And we hold the bassoon gently, leaning it diagonally in front of us in a casual embrace. The keywork on a bassoon is made of large finger touches, extended rods and levers, and lots of open space. Our voice is low and reassuring to our colleagues. You can generally trust a bassoonist to pay his bills and be kind to animals. Now, the oboe, on the other hand, is a very narrow two-foot tube made of grenadilla, which is not the sort of wood you pick up in the forest and idly carve. It comes from Africa, it's a bit tricky to work with, and it's prone to cracking. The keys on the oboe are tiny and crunched together, Well, taking apart an oboe is like fixing a Swiss watch. The instrument is held straight out in front of the body, and you have to hold it carefully, sort of like taking a cat out of the bath. Oboists have to force all of the air through a very small reed, and their voice is high and piercing. They give the tuning A in an orchestra because nobody else wants to pick a fight with them. They're reported to be unreliable in their financial dealings, impatient with children, and generally don't break for small animals. Okay, well, I made up that last part. Well, joining me today to defend oboists against scurrilous nonsense from bassoonists is our principal oboist, Charles Heyman. Charles is known to all of us as Chip, and I suspect the reason for the nickname has something to do with reed-making. There are, in fact, wood chips scattered on the floor everywhere he goes. Chip Heyman. Why are oboe players always fidgeting with their reeds? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I feel like I've, I've just heard a diatribe against oboe players here. So uh, 
<laughs> it's a great question, actually. Why are oboe players always fidgeting with their reeds? Um, the short answer is we're neurotic as hell. <laughs> um, the real reason is because the the reed is small, delicate, highly prone to change, um, and has to be extremely customized to the job. So you have to make your own. That's right. Is that a universal constant among professional oboists that they all make their own reeds? I don't know anybody who doesn't make their reeds. Um, I think the degree to which we are able to control the reed uh, is the degree to which we can sleep at night and be able to do what's asked of us um, on the spot when a conductor puts their hand up or down or sideways or makes a funny look. Um, and you have to try to be able to uh, execute that conductor's vision. Um, the reed has to perform for you. The great Marcel Tabito said it was uh, the analogy was like the horse and the rider. The horse has to carry the rider the entire distance, and the reed is like the horse for us. But it's a horse that requires a tremendous amount of daily training. Absolutely. So how, many hour, how many hours a day do you have to spend making reeds? Um, I think the question really depends on what I have to do in my job. There are some weeks where the demands are very heavy um, and I'm spending more hours than other weeks. But I would say on a given week, I'm probably spending a good average of an hour of work a day, at least on reed making, whether that's uh, all every single day or concentrated on a few specific days when I have heavy concerts. Um, but I would say well, at least an hour a day of just reed making. In an average, in an average day. But if, if, for example, you had to play a concerto, which we heard off the top of this program, that lovely performance, you're playing a Mozart concerto. How many hours a day are you having to, to focus on reed making under that kind of an extreme demand? I think that Probably I would be stockpiling. You'd be stockpiling. Um, and so that would just mean more hours of practice and more hours of reed making. And I like having the option of having a case full of reeds to choose from. Well, let's take our listeners through the process so we get some idea of just exactly what reed making entails. What do you start with? That's a good question. Um, the raw material is called Arundo Donax. That's the Latin term. Um, and it's a form of bamboo really, and it grows in certain regions of the world, uh, most importantly, southern France. But there are other places in the world where it's starting to be grown now. Um, the characteristics of this plant, it's a very, very tall plant, and all reed instruments use the same material. It's just taken from different places on the plant. So um, single reed instruments like the clarinet and the saxophone use a much larger part of the plant, which is nearer the ground. And as the plant grows taller and taller, you're getting closer to the top of the plant, you have uh, smaller and smaller diameters. So at the very top is the oboe, because the reed is the smallest of all the reed instruments. Um, if you went down, you would go oboe de more, English horn, bassoon, contrabassoon, and then into the single reed family. So it's the very top of the plant. So they cut this plant off and dry it in the sun, and hopefully they age it properly, and then eventually it gets shipped to dealers 
in the country uh, where it was grown, and then eventually it makes it to to dealers in other countries, and then that's where I get it. Do you mean to tell me that there are farmers in in southern France whose business it is just growing cane? Oh, believe me, it is a business. It's a huge business. Um, it's an international business, and uh, it's very fascinating. Um, there are farmers or or uh, cane growers, I guess you could say, who have this in their family lineage for many generations. And it's, it's almost like winemaking. Well, actually, it is. Is there some of the same mystique about growing cultures and weather and cultivation secrets? Absolutely. Really? Um, I would say that um, there's maybe even superstition. Um, Oval players tend to be prone, I think, to a little bit to superstition. But there certainly is truth that certain soils, um, certain weather conditions, the amount of drying and aging all have an impact on the final product that Boy, we Thank that we goodness receive. we don't have to worry about this when we buy wicker furniture. <laughs> it, these growing conditions make a tremendous difference to the microscopic uh, construction of, the, of each piece of cane. Right. It has to do with, um, ultimately, it's a vibrating source for us, right? And so, um, as any plant is composed of vascular bundles, um, the density of those bundles and um, the way they absorb water, the way they vibrate, hardness, softness, um, how long the cane has been aged is a big factor. Uh, often cane that's too green is prone to being unstable and too changeable. But like everything in reeds, it all depends. There, there are always exceptions to those rules, just like there are young wines that somehow taste surprisingly mature and finished. Um, the same goes for cane. But um, somehow it seems like there's a, a, a tradition in southern France, and the Var region especially, um, of consistently fine cane year year after year. But of course, the other side of this is that all oboe players seem to feel that there's no good cane anymore and that all the good cane disappeared at least 30 years ago. Well, if we're comparing the analogy to winemaking, that would be like saying there hasn't been any good wine since Chateau Lafitte 1964 or something. Right, and we all know that isn't true. But uh, I don't know, maybe that's where the similarities end, but I do know that um, there does seem to be an awful lot of cane that gets thrown in the garbage can. But Chip, the bottom line though here is, so if you don't like the wine you drink, you spit it out. But if, if you've got a lousy piece of cane and you're sitting there on stage, how, how badly does a bad read affect your performance? Or how well does a good read affect your performance? Give me the parameters of what, of what this read represents to you in terms of an obstacle to music making. Well, all read players uh, have read troubles. Uh, it's just that the oboe read is smaller than any of the other ones. Um, and therefore, it's the most susceptible to subtle changes. Um, and influenced, I suppose, by all of the factors of the quality of the cane. Bassoon players, clarinet players, saxophone players, they've got more raw material to work with. Somehow there's a little bit more room for error. With just, the oboe, just because the reeds are so small for the oboe. Right. If you actually look at the amount of, of material that's used for an oboe reed, it's probably at least half the size of a bassoon reed. And bassoon reeds are smaller than, than clarinet reeds. So um, it's really a very, very small amount of material. Every little bit um, of variation has a huge effect on the reed. So to answer your question as to how a piece of cane or a bad piece of cane or a bad reed affects a performance, it's critical. It's absolutely critical. Very subtle changes in the reed can completely throw you off. Meaning that the notes might not even speak, might not even work, or absolutely. might be out of tune. Or... Absolutely. Intonation problems, response, um, things don't come out the way you want 
Um, you have trouble making dynamic contrast, especially when you have to enter softly. That's the nemesis of oboe players is having control over soft attacks. The equivalent of being at the tip of the bow for the violin is, is the equivalent of, of an oboe player having to make a soft attack. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves in the details of this. I want to just take a step back. You've described this piece of uh, Arundo Donex that's been nicely grown, nicely aged, chopped up and sent to you here in Canada. And what do you do with that tube of cane? It looks a bit like a... I'm looking at a piece now, and it looks a little bit like a stick of bamboo, although it's, it is a different genus. Right. It's shorter. Um, but basically, this is a tube. Uh, it's a, a cylinder, like uh, something you would see on the back of a chair. Um, and they're usually cut into tubes of, oh, anywhere from 6 to 12, 13 inches in length. And from that tube, I have to divide it into sections, usually into three sections. I do that with a razor blade. Longitudinally? Exactly. So I'm going with the grain, and I'm aiming to get a curved section, which I will then cut with, ironically enough, it's called a guillotine. Um, And I'm going to guillotine that piece of cane to a particular length. Um, So I'm looking, even when I have the tube itself, I'm looking for that specific section of the tube of cane that's going to produce so the straightest if, possible result. If you're out in the country and you're chopping wood and you have a very specific fireplace to fit, you're having to cut your wood to a certain length and then splitting it to a certain width to get the best burn. That's a great analogy. Okay. Absolutely. So continue with the description. So once I've cut it to length, then I have to do several other steps to process it um, into a, a form that I can actually use to make a reed. So the first thing I do is I plane it. Um, giving me a flat surface, and then I actually use a machine called a gouging machine to gouge out a large part of the inside. If you think about carving a pumpkin at Halloween, um, you have to sort of scoop out all of the pumpkin seeds and the gunk, and and you're left with something that's um, thinner. And if you wanted to gouge thinner, you could keep going with your spoon and and make it very, very thin, and you'd have a... There is a bit of a similarity to a pumpkin, isn't there? Because a pumpkin is mostly empty inside. It's got a lot of air inside it. Exactly. And Arundo Donax, this cane that you make your reeds from, is like any of the grass family, hollow as it grows. Exactly. So it has a kind of a pulpy inside. Is that what the gouger does? It takes It takes all of that pulpy stuff out. Okay. And we're talking about uh, thresholds of a hundredth of a millimeter. Um, those are the dimensions that we work with when we finally get to our... What, what, what? A hundredth of a millimeter. That is correct. A hundredth of a millimeter difference can make a very significant difference in you the way can, the final can, product. You can barely see that. It's a thin, very. very it's interesting very thin because shaving, isn't it? You do. You really. You start to get a feel for these dimensions when you work with them over a number of years. So I can actually see a couple three hundredths of difference, um, and your eye actually can see that. But it's it is a very very small threshold. It's almost impossible to see it. Okay, so if we can try to visualize here, we've taken this um, cut piece of cane and we've gouged it. What's the next step? Okay, then we have to fold it in half um, and then we put it on a piece of equipment called a shaper, which basically narrows it according to certain, again, certain very specific parameters. So it's sort of a curved shape. So the shaper defines how wide it is. Exactly. And where it's wide and where it's narrow. So for example, where it's tied onto the tube, it's narrower and it flares slightly as it goes towards the tip, which is where we play the reed. Um, And all of those dimensions are very, very important and they must match with the dimensions of 
the thickness of the gouge. Um, so oboe players are always talking about their gougers and their shapers and what shape are you using? What gouge are you using? What's the thickness? Um, Holy so, cow, that's, yeah, that's a whole science into itself. It's a science. It's a whole world. In fact, um, to learn to make reeds well um, is a process that takes years, many, many years. And to learn about the art and science of gouging machines and shaper tips, there's probably an equally deep learning curve uh, in terms of the amount of information and the mastery of all of that. It must be a terrible obstacle for kids learning the oboe. It is. I think it's important for kids to study a different instrument before they arrive at the oboe. Um, The piano is great. Singing is great. Um, Anything that can help you get your hands around um, the basics of music theory and understanding the language of how music works, then when you get to the oboe, you're better equipped to to deal with the technical challenges. But you need to be equipped psychologically to deal with the the challenge of, of an interface with your instrument that changes on a daily basis. It's true. You have to have a certain kind of um, mental toughness, I suppose. (laughs) How's this for analogy? Tell me if there's any truth to this. You're a violinist and you have to make a bow by hand out of a stick of wood every day. And you have to cut the long tail hairs off a horse and bow the, put the hair on the bow every day. Is that what it's like? I would say so. I would say so because if you think about the way a bow makes contact with the string, you can have a Stradivarius violin, a magnificent Guarneri, whatever uh, marvelous instrument that you want. Um, if you have a terrible bow, uh, you're not going to have a beautiful tone. You're not going to have resonance and control over all of those aspects that we think of when we think of fine music making. So it's a very similar analogy. I also like the analogy of the hockey player. Um, I once met a hockey player, and I was explaining uh, the process of making reads, and to my utter shock, he said to me, well, you realize before hockey games, I do that to my sticks, too. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Hockey players carve and refine and shape and completely customize their hockey sticks. Or it's a little like uh, fishermen doing fly fly fishing exactly. and having to make their flies. In fact, my teacher is a devoted fly fisherman and uh, has perhaps more flies than he has reeds. So, so the patience for one skill is uh, useful for the other skill. Okay, we're back to the reed. You've shaped it. And then begins the painful and excruciatingly difficult process of finishing them. Right. So then we take the piece of cane and we tie it onto a small metal tube that has cork around the bottom. And this cork provides an airtight seal when you put the reed into the instrument. So that's how the wood is a, it gets attached so physically and, and sturdily to the bore of the oboe. Exactly. Because if I were to blow air into my instrument, like I'll do now... That sounds good. You hear a little bit of hissing, but no music. Right. Um, I've got to have the reed or my instrument doesn't make a sound. Um, and so when I put the read into the instrument, I can actually make a, a, a tone. But the piece of cane has to be attached to something that is more or less an extension of the bore. So that's what the, the tube or the staple, as it's called sometimes, that's the function that that provides. So once I have this piece of cane tied on, it still doesn't vibrate yet. Um, if you think about the pumpkin, on the outside of the pumpkin is that hard uh, dark orange colored sort of skin or shell. Well, the outside surface of the cane is similar. There's a bark, or if you think of the bark of a tree as being hard and different from the inside of a tree. Um, We have to scrape the bark and several layers beneath the bark away. Using? Using very specialized knives that are extremely sharp and that tend to dull easily and which must be continually sharpened. 
um, and whose edge is very, very important in the final result. So, so you have to be an expert knife sharpener. Exactly. Or you have to know someone who is. Okay. <laughs> so you start taking away hundreds of a millimeter of cane with your knife. Precisely. Until you get what? Until you get, the first thing you need is vibration. You need to simply get uh, the piece of cane to vibrate. Um, but then I'm looking for very specific um, types of vibration. I need to allow certain partials to pass through and I need to filter certain other ones out because I need to build a kind of controlled vibration so that I can do a variety of different things with the reed. If I simply scraped it randomly, um, I would have a very wild, nasty sounding thing that I couldn't control. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't work for an orchestral player. You must be able to control how the reed functions. So it's a very specific type of, of scraping with very specific proportions and dimensions and certain parts of the reed are thicker than others. So. so when an audience member comes to a symphony concert and sees the first oboe sitting in his or her chair half hour before the concert, I see you bent over and your elbows flying. You are, you are working on the final trim for your reeds. Exactly. And you have to do this every concert. I have to make reeds all the time. And I would say it's rare that I have a reed that's just perfect the way it is and I can walk into the concert. I usually do some little adjustments. So I do I'm, even more at intermission, I find, because somehow from the first half to the second half, it doesn't work. <laughs> okay, so w w we now have an explanation for why there's always debris around your chair. Exactly. Yeah, little we're messy. Very thin shavings of a Rondo Donax. It's very interesting. You know, we're so neurotic about it that sometimes we're even prone to scraping in the middle of a piece or between pieces because something has changed. The temperature has gone up slightly or a front is passing through and the air pressure is changing. And these atmospheric conditions in the given space where I happen to be performing really do affect a read. Are you telling me that if the barometer is rising or the barometer is falling, your reads are responding to that? Absolutely. Wow. They do change. And they certainly change from home to the concert hall or from different parts of the art center to the stage of the art center. I have certain rooms I like backstage because they're better for reads than others. Why have you not gone completely crazy? <laughs> It's a good question. Some mobile players do. Um, we're known to be temperamental and difficult and um, a little a little whacked sometimes. Uh, stressed would be the word. I think you're always living under a certain amount of stress. It's been called a, a high wire act to play this instrument. So why do you play the instrument? Because it's the most magical instrument I know. Um, there are things that the oboe can do that so closely resemble the human voice. And I think that's why I was drawn to it because um, there's a vocal quality that comes from these two pieces of cane vibrating together. I mean, Chris, you can easily understand that playing the bassoon because the bassoon is sort of similar in its vocal quality and the, the way these two pieces of cane vibrate, it's very much like the voice, like the vocal cords. And um, there's something that can be communicated with that vibration that is unique. And, um, I sort of think the oboe is like the soprano and the bassoon is like a baritone or something like that. We've got the English horn in between, maybe the contralto, if you want to think of the analogy. But uh, it's that vocal quality, I think, that's so magical.
That was from Richard Strauss' great tone poem, Don Quixote. That was the introduction of Dulcinea, and we hear most vocal instrument in the wind section. And our guest is Chip Heyman, the principal oboe of the National Arts Center Orchestra. So, Chip, this daily uncertainty of reed making, how are you able to cope with it on a, an emotional and physical level? <laughs> It's just not knowing every time you bring the reed to your mouth whether the thing is going to do what you hope it will. We gradually over a period of years learn more and more about the art and science of making reeds. And gradually we start to get more and more control over it. Um, But you're never 100% sure. And um, so you have to be able to live with that. If you can't live with that, then I tell all my students you shouldn't be playing the oboe. And you shouldn't be playing the oboe if you don't like to make reeds. Personally, I love to make reeds. Um, I find it a challenge. I find it interesting. I find there's an opportunity each day to renew yourself as a musician because you're literally playing on a different instrument every single day. And you have that responsibility, which, of course, can be a burden sometimes and frustrating when things don't work. Um, But there's also a pride that comes when a reed works magnificently and you know it's the result of um, many years of study and um, very careful preparation and um, and having everything organized just so. So we're on a continuum of learning to get these things under control more and more as we progress through our careers. Chip, why is it that the oboe gets to give the tuning A to an orchestra? It's a really good question. I, I don't actually know the origin of this tradition, but I know it's a tradition that goes way back. Do you, do you happen to know? Well, I, ha- I have two guesses that I've always presumed. One is, of course, that the sound of the oboe is so clear. The other is that once you have gone through this very difficult process of building your reeds, you don't have a huge flexibility of pitch. That's correct. So if you tune your reeds, if you build your reeds to to tune an A440, that's where they want to go. Exactly. Most other instruments in the orchestra can do something about the tuning. Right. Flute players can adjust their head joints. Right. All the string instruments can tighten or loosen their strings. Trumpet players... French horn players, we all have adjustments. You don't have a lot of adjustment. No. So it's a. I would say it's a combination of the piercing quality, the clear overtone structure, and the immovability. Yeah. I think it's a tone that's easily heard. We're centrally located in the orchestra. The oboe is literally, literally right in the middle of everything. And so it's easy to, to hear that tone. It's high enough and it's clear enough. Um, and it's a big burden, I have to say. It's a huge responsibility to have to give that a... Because you almost have to give it in the right place, don't you? It's the most stressful moment of the concert, I have to say. (laughs) Um, A few exceptions, maybe. But um, generally speaking, I'm the most nervous when I have to give the A because I want it to be good. And I want it to be right where it needs to be. Um, It's your one-note solo every night. That's right. Okay, another, another very important question. Why the heck is it? that oboe players are always stopping and blowing into the tone holes of their instruments and getting that exasperated look on their face every time you make a mistake. What's this about? Well, as if the reeds weren't enough, we have other potential pitfalls to contend with. Because of the way the oboe is made, we have these holes all along the bore of the instrument, and each one of these holes is covered by a silver key. And the holes are the vehicle through which the, the tone emerges for different notes. And as you go down the instrument... Um, the the column of vibrating air becomes longer and therefore the pitch is lower. Um, so sometimes I'll be playing along, minding my own business, and all of a sudden a note will gurgle. Or sometimes it won't even come out, or it'll have a, a terrible hissing sound, or it'll be the wrong pitch. And what happens is there there is a condensation effect when we 
blow that moisture into the instrument. And that condensation, when all goes well, runs down the backside of the instrument where we don't have any tone holes. Um, but when it goes into the tone hole, then you can get a bubble there of moisture, and that's what causes the note not to sound. And so it's just a stress. Can I you tell know? you honestly, Chip, I'm so glad that I didn't take up the oboe. The, 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 it's just such such a problem. But, you know, the bassoon, for all of you listening out there, the bassoon um, is a close second, I would say, to, to the oboe in terms of the possible things that can go wrong. So I do have a certain compassion for my colleagues well, who sit behind me. We'll let our <laughs> listeners figure all this out. Chip Heyman, thank you so much for coming in and giving us this description about the challenges of the oboe, the oboe reed maker. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on NACOcast. Until next week, this is Christopher Millard for Canada's National Arts Centre.